Matthew chapter 10 is where we find ourselves this morning, and uh, we do uh, come to God's Word with uh, just a reverence and an awe, and, and we have a high view of God's Word here in this place, and we just want to um, seek to uh, worship Him this morning in uh, spirit and truth, and, and part of that worship is through His Word. So we're in the middle of our the beginning of the list of the apostles, and we've been looking at them. And uh, last week, we, we looked at the first one. But uh, I want to kind of just review a little bit here, just uh, kind of quickly, uh, so that we understand where we've been and where we're going. Uh, remember, as, as chapter 9 concluded, okay, in the, the, the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus looked over the multitude, and he saw them in spiritual um, lostness. He looked at them and he had compassion on them. He felt their pain, their frustration, their sorrow because their religious leaders weren't doing what God had called them to do. They were really abusing them. And he realized that the harvest was coming, that being judgment. That's what the Bible means when he says the Lord of the harvest. It's a coming, pending judgment. And as the Lord looked over these lost souls, he had compassion on them. And he realized that there were so many people and yet he was one individual, he got his disciples together and he asked them to pray at the end of chapter 9 that the Lord would send forth workers. And then, beginning of chapter 10, we see that his disciples are the answer to their own prayer. And sometimes that's how God works. Sometimes we pray that God would reach our lost relative with the gospel of Christ. And sometimes as we pray for that and we pray that God would send someone to them, Sometimes he turns it right around and says, why don't you go? And so that's what happened here. And so the opening verse of chapter 10, he called them to be the answer to their own prayer. And it says there, and when he had called his 12 disciples to him, it says he gave them power over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal all kinds of sickness and all kinds of disease. And then he names, verse 2 says, now the names of the 12 apostles... And there was that transition there between verse 1 and verse 2. They were disciples. They were learners, mathetas. But now they're apostles. They're ones who did learn, and now they're being sent out. And we looked at that whole process, and you can get the, the back messages on those if you like. They're on the Internet or on the web page. But remember that Ephesians 2.20 says that Christ built... The church was built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ himself being the cornerstone. And so when Jesus Christ called out these 12 men, everything that he lived for and would die for hinged upon their effectiveness after he was off the scene. Now, just in in reference to a little bit of review here, remember there's four lists of these men in the New Testament. We find them here in Matthew 10, we find it in Mark 3, Luke 6, and also in Acts 1. And in each list, Peter is always the first one mentioned. He's always the first one mentioned. Another thing we realized about these four lists, or these these, uh, three lists of of four, where they're divided into subgroups. And you can see there the different groups that they're always listed in. They may be in a different order within that group, but the four guys are always in the same group, with the leader always being first. And then the other thing that we noticed was that the subgroups basically are in list of their calling. In other words, 
The first group was called to Christ first. The second group was called to Christ second. Third group. And also their intimacy. The first group was very intimate with Christ. We know that. So here we have these three groups of men, and that's what we're kind of, of looking at. Now, last week, we looked at the first one, and that was uh, Peter. And we mentioned a little bit about Peter in that he had some leadership uh, potential that we needed to see. And the Lord saw certain things in Peter. First of all, he saw the right material. He saw somebody who asked questions. He saw somebody who basically showed some initiative. He was always in the middle of the activity. Secondly, he also had the right experiences. He was incredible, given incredible revelations. He's the one that said, well, who else should we go to? Thou art the Christ. All right. Um, He was given great reward. We looked at how he was given the keys to the kingdom. But he was also rebuked greatly. He, He rejected Christ greatly. But he was also recommissioned by Christ himself. And also, we saw how he possessed the right attitudes, a, learn, a willingness to learn, a submission, a willingness to learn restraint, a willingness to learn humility, sacrifice, love, and courage. Those are the things that Peter had to learn in order to be used of the Lord. So these guys became ambassadors of Jesus Christ. They became his representatives in the world. His laborers to reach and to warn the, all these multitudes that Christ was looking at from the impending judgment that would come. Now, it's, it's interesting because you read through the list of these guys and sometimes we look at them and we, we think, oh, they were apostles, they were disciples. You know, they're the guys that when you go in certain churches are on the stained glass windows. Ooh, you know, you see pictures of them. What do you see? Little halos around their heads. Okay, that's our worldly image of these guys. I'm here to tell you that's not how the Bible portrays them. The Bible portrays this group of men as a basic group of men. (laughs) Very basic. They were fishermen, tax collectors. They're made up of of, of kind of the the base things of society. They weren't a, a bunch of guys who had doctorate degrees and were so effective in ministry, Jesus said, oh, I need you on my team. Jesus didn't go out and look through all the CEOs in his neighborhood and say, well, these guys are great, you know. No, he didn't do that. And so it's kind of important for us to understand that when we looked at at Peter last week, it says there that he was first, it says first Simon Peter. And he was basically the leader of these guys. He was basically the leader of these guys. Now, when you look at these gentlemen who Jesus called out to serve him and to be his representatives on earth. It kind of, in my mind, I asked the question, what kind of people can God use? What kind of people can God use? That's the kind of question we want to ask ourselves this morning. What kind of people can God use? What kind of people can God use in ministry? What kind of people can God use to change the world? What kind of people can preach the gospel of the kingdom so that souls are saved. What kind of people does God ordain for his purposes? Like I said, when we think about these guys, we think of them as, what do we call them? We call them what? Saints, right? Saint Peter, Saint Andrew. We have cathedrals named after these guys. 
Frankly, that's not the way it ought to be because these guys were very basic. They were very common men with a totally uncommon calling, you might say. But they're very much like you and I. So when we go through in the next couple of weeks, we're going to take a look at a snapshot kind of these guys. Sometimes we'll do one. Sometimes we'll do a couple because some of these guys, frankly, there's nothing we don't know a lot about them. So it would be hard to preach a whole sermon on one guy when you don't have any background and you have nothing about him. So we're going to take some and bite chunk some like Peter. And, and uh, today we're just going to look basically at Andrew. But these are very common guys with a very uncommon calling. And I want you to, in the coming weeks, to see if you can see yourself in their personalities, in the way they act. Last week we saw how God uses someone like Simon Peter. He was very impulsive. He was very dynamic. Okay? He was strong. He was initiator. He was the guy that always opened up his mouth and put his foot in there. It's just the way he was. You know, he was always almost the first to speak. And usually it was wrong. Uh, God uses those kinds of people. But he also uses the second guy on the list. The second guy on the list is Andrew. Now, this is Peter's brother. Andrew is basically the least known of the first group. Remember, there's three groups of four. Among the the first group, you have Peter, James, and John. They're kind of Jesus Christ's inner circle. And then you have group one who includes Andrew. And sometimes he was part of that inner circle, sometimes he wasn't. Um, He was very much left in the background a lot of times. When you read through the New Testament and you look for Andrew, you're not going to find a lot about this guy. A lot of times he's not even included in a lot of the major events where Peter, James, and John were together with Christ. There's no mention of Andrew there. At other times, however, he's featured as part of this inner circle. Now, there's no question, obviously, that he had a close relationship with Christ. Not just because he's in the first group, but because he was always bringing people to Christ. That's what he was doing. He always wanted to introduce people personally to the master. That was his kind of task. He was the first disciple to be called, by the way. A lot of times people think it's Peter because he's listed first. No, Peter was the leader. But we, if you read through your Bible, you find that Andrew was the first one to be called. And he's the one that went and got his brother, Peter. So he had an eagerness to follow Christ, and that kind of was combined with his zeal to introduce others to the Savior. Uh, These brothers, Peter and Andrew, were from Bethesda, as we said last week, and and they moved basically to Capernaum. They're both for fishermen. They operated a fishing business together. And they were lifelong companions with the other two brothers in the first group, James and John. They were also fishermen, the Bible tells us. And so these four guys kind of grew up together. They grew up in the same same immediate area. They all had the same profession. So they kind of childhood buddies. Um, we all have those. You think back in life. You had a, a friend probably that stuck through you, with you through, um, you know, grade school, maybe even high school. Well, that's how these guys were. They even took a sabbatical together from the fishing business in order to go find this John the Baptist who was supposed to be the predecessor to Christ. And it seems that they became disciples of John the Baptist. And that's where they first met Christ. And when they returned to their fishing before Jesus called them to full-time discipleship, you might say, ministry, they remained as, as together as partners. But in a lot of ways, they were inseparable. 
These guys, they were always together, it seemed. And they all wanted to be leaders. Now, if you know anything about leadership, you get four guys together that every each one of them has a desire to be a leader. What do you usually have? Conflict, right? I mean, you have conflict because everybody's trying to take over the leadership of the group. Well, Peter basically was the leader of all the apostles. We, we found that out last week. But within this first group, it seems that three of these leaders, Peter, James, and John, were always fighting, always trying to one-up the other, always struggling to, to make sure their leadership was known. We don't see that about Andrew. Andrew was always kind of in the shadows. He always would, would take a step back. They all had an eagerness to lead, even Andrew. But when it came down to it, he would, he would rather you know, allow the peace of the group than stand up for his own initiative there. And so Jesus was training these guys for leadership. Andrew was the least conspicuous, you might say, of these first four guys. You can count, basically, on fingers how many times he's even mentioned in the Bible at all. Um, He's basically mentioned 12 times altogether. Three of those times is in one of these lists. And everything else we, we hear about him, there's not a whole lot said. Sometimes one gospel will give an account of something and they'll include Peter's name. And then maybe Luke, on the other hand, they'll give the same account, but they won't even mention, uh, or excuse me, they won't even mention uh, Andrew. All right? Because of the fact that he was always kind of in the background. Andrew was known as Peter's brother. That's what his name was. Oh, you're Peter's brother. If you've ever grown up in a large family, I grew up in a big family, nine brothers and sisters, six brothers, two sisters, and we all went to the same high school. Our family spans, I think, 23 years from me to, to, to my oldest brother. And I remember going to high school, all my other brothers and sisters were already graduated. I came a little late. I was six years removed from the, the next one up, which was a sister. But all of my brothers, for the most part, I couldn't say all of them, but a lot of them were very, very gifted athletes. I mean, incredibly gifted athletes. And I remember the first day in high school, sitting there in the homeroom, and the homeroom teacher, his name was... Uh, Zap was his last name. He was the football coach. And, you know, the first day in school, you sit down, they read off the roster, and they're going through the names, and he's flubbing some of the names and stuff. And he comes to my name, and he goes, Stephen Converse, we'll see you at football practice, right? And immediately, there was the shadow of my brothers and this pressure to perform athletically. And if you know anything about me, I mean, you know, I'm into sports and stuff, but I don't have the competitive nature that it would take to be at the scale of where my brothers were. I just don't. And I remember the first two years in high school just living in the shadow of my older brothers. And that was a real struggle. But here, Andrew, he's always living in the shadow of his own brother, Peter, who's the leader of the whole group, and yet it doesn't seem to affect the relationship at all. Andrew just kind of takes second fiddle, and he's fine with that. It doesn't really uh, cause any problem. He's the one that introduced Peter to Christ in the first place, and he did it without hesitation. And so that says a lot about his character. You know, if you have a brother that's always one-upping you on stuff, a lot of times if you're out with your friends, who's the last person you want to show up? Your brother, right? Because they're going to one-up you in front of your friends and make you look bad. Andrew wasn't that way. He said, hey, no, this is, this is incredible stuff. I need to get my brother Peter to come and see the Lord. 
He didn't seem to resent those who labored in the spotlight or the limelight. He was fine, just taking a back seat. And that's how God made him. That's how uh, he was created in God's image. Whereas Peter was more kind of just in your face. A lot of times he was clumsy. He was hasty. He was impulsive. And Andrew was anything but that. James and John, we're going to find out, were known as the, the sons of thunder. I mean, that should just say enough, you know. I mean, we, you know, you, if you've ever met some little kids, brothers and sisters, you know, that are just rambunctious and running all over the place, you know, kind of think of that, but in an adult mindset. Okay, the, the sons of thunder says everything we need to say about them. And then you have Andrew. Just kind of quiet Andrew, just kind of, you know, doesn't say a whole lot. If you look in Scripture, he barely speaks at all. But when he speaks, he always says the right thing. He's never rebuked for saying the wrong thing. Interesting. Whereas Peter, on the other hand, every time he opened his mouth, he was putting his foot in it. And whenever Andrew would act apart from the other disciples, he did the right thing. Now, there's something to be a herd mentality. And, and sometimes when all those four were together, those four brothers, you know, uh, all, they're all fishermen and they're all doing something. And Peter's leading the way, and Andrew's part of that group. He would just go along with the group. Even though probably in his heart he knew it was the wrong thing to do, he would just kind of fall in line and do it. But whenever he acts by himself, apart from that group, he never does anything wrong. He always does what seems to be right, given the situation. Scripture never attaches any dishonor to Andrew's actions or his words when it mentions him by name. He was a very effective leader, though a little different than Peter. But he never took the spotlight. He never quite took the spotlight. And there's people like that. There's people with incredible leadership skills, but don't like to be in the spotlight. So Andrew and Peter, though they were brothers, they totally had different leadership styles. His, main, his name, by the, the way, Andrew, means manly. I would like to have that name, manly. Okay. Well, and it, doesn't, it speaks a lot of his personality. He was a fisherman. You know anything about fishing back in those days? I mean, it, you, know, you weren't a wimp if you were a fisherman. I mean, you had to have some physique to you to pull the nets and to do everything that was needed to do, row out, row back, do all the maintenance on the boat. I mean, it was a very strenuous physical job. And so his, his name really speaks of not only his physical description, but even his character. Uh, he was bold. He was decisive. He was deliberate. Nothing about Andrew seems that he was some wimp cowering in the corner. He just decided to kind of take a step back from the other three at times. And he was driven, more than anything, by a passion for the truth. He was willing to do whatever it takes to make sure that the truth got out. That's a, that's a great attribute to have, by the way. Well, there's some major experiences that happened in the life of Andrew. We just kind of want to look at those um, briefly this morning before our communion time. The first one you find over in John chapter 1, verses uh, 29 to 42. And this is the first time that Andrew meets Christ. The very first time. John's Gospel describes Andrew first meeting with Jesus. It took place in the wilderness because they were out there trying to figure out who this John the Baptist guy was. John the Baptist was preaching repentance and baptizing converts. And the Apostle John, he basically records this incident as an eyewitness to the whole thing. Because he and Andrew were together as disciples of John the Baptist. So he had some prior religious commitment 
prior to meeting Christ. And you look at, at verse 29, John 1, 29. It says, The next day John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who is preferred before me, for he was before me. I did not know him, but that he should be revealed to Israel. Therefore, I came baptizing with water. And it says, And John bore witness, saying, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and he remained upon him. I did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to him, Upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining on him, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and testify that this is the Son of God. So they have this, this, this first encounter here. And it goes on, verse 35, Again, the next day, John stood with two of his disciples. And looking at Jesus, as he walked, he said, Behold the Lamb of God. So he's standing there with, with John and, and Andrew. And Jesus walks by, and John rightfully says, Behold the Lamb of God. And look at what the two disciples do in verse 37. The two disciples heard him speak, and then they followed Jesus. You might say, well, that's kind of abrupt. Weren't they disciples of John? Yes. But they understood what John the Baptist's role was. John the Baptist was there to make the way for the Messiah. That's what he taught. He said, the Messiah is coming. There's one that's coming that, that I can't even, not even able to tie his footstraps on his sandals. There's, there's one that's truly the Messiah from God. I'm just the predecessor. I'm just here to lay the groundwork, you might say. And so as soon as John the Baptist looked at Jesus and said, behold, the Lamb of God, it clicked for these two guys. They understood exactly what he was saying. And it says the two disciples uh, then uh, followed him, okay? Heard him speak, followed Jesus. And then Jesus turned, seeing them following him. They're walking down a road and saying, okay, what do these guys want? He said, what do you want? What do you seek? And they said to him, Rabbi, which is to be translated teacher, where are you staying? And he said, well, come on, you can come with me. And they came, verse 39, and they saw where he was staying. We don't know where it was. It could have been a house that he was using. It could have been an inn or something. Who knows? We know Christ didn't have his own house. So it was something that was borrowed at best. And it says there, he, he remained, and they remained with him that day. I mean, can you imagine running into Jesus, having John the Baptist, you're looking for the Messiah the whole time, John the Baptist saying, this is the guy. And then Jesus turning to you and saying, hey, what do you want? Well, you know, where are you staying? Oh, come on, I'll show you. And you spend the whole day with him. I wonder what they talked about. I wonder what the conversation was. I mean, it's incredible. I'm sure it was instructive from Jesus' standpoint of view. They were, he was instructing them even at that early point in time. It was about the 10th hour, it says. Verse 40 says, one of the two who heard John speak and followed him was, who? Andrew. Simon Peter's brother. <laughs> See, there it is. He was always Simon Peter's brother. It was never just, that's Andrew. No, it's Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother, Simon. Okay, this is the first action that Andrew did in his newfound relationship to Christ. First he met Christ, then 
after he realized that he was the Messiah, the first thing he did, it says he went and he found his own brother Simon. And he said to him in verse 41, we have found the Messiah, which is translated the Christ. And look at verse 42. He brought him to what? To Jesus. He brought him to Jesus. See, this good news that they found the Messiah. Finally, they're long awaiting this. There were religious men, Jewish men. The Messiah is coming. The Messiah is coming. John the Baptist told them. They've read accounts of it in the Old Testament. Finally, here he is. They have a time with them, a conversation with Christ, the Messiah. And they come out of that meeting probably like feeling like, man, this is just incredible. Their emotions are going through the roof. The first thing he does is, i got to tell somebody, I'm going to go get my brother, Simon, and tell him about this. The news was good, too good for him to keep to himself. So Andrew went out and he found the person in the world whom he loved the most, his own brother. And he wanted him to know Jesus, so he led him to Christ. And Peter and Andrew went back to Capernaum and they continued their fishing career after this initial meeting with Christ. So you mean they didn't continue to follow him? No. There's a break here. They realized he was the Messiah. They followed him. They had a little coffee sit down with him. And then Jesus went on to do his ministry. These guys went back to fishing. But I'm sure that the excitement was still there. Sometimes we've lost that excitement, haven't we? As our faith begins to age in Christ. Think back with me, if you will, just for a second. The first time that you were excited about the gospel, the first time you heard the gospel, the time that you made that commitment to him, when you prayed to God and you asked him to forgive you of your sins, and you realized that he had done that and that you were a new person in Christ. If you had that transaction take place in your life, I guarantee after that transaction took place, you were a little excited. You may have been a little emotional. Probably the first thing you did is you wanted to tell somebody this good news that you found out. That's what Andrew did. He went out and he found his brother. See, that's, that's kind of a, a basic representation of someone who comes to Christ. See, I have a big question mark in my mind. Someone who comes to Christ, and then you ask them, well, have you told anybody? No, 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 I'm not going to tell anybody. It caused too much problem. No, I can't. couldn't tell anybody about this. And they hide in the, the closet and they shield their faith from everybody because, boy, it would just cause too many disruptions at work or in my family. You don't understand, you know, my family's, you know, of whatever religion. But that wasn't so with Andrew. Andrew said, no, I've got to go tell people. And that's exactly what he did. And he went out and he got his brother. And then we have a second encounter with Christ that Andrew has in Matthew chapter 4, verse 18 to 22. Jesus was walking along the Sea of Galilee. Remember, he just continued his ministry. And he sees these two brothers. Simon called Peter and Andrew his brother. What are they doing? They're back to fishing. They're back to fishing. They were fishermen. That's what they did. And he said to them, follow me and I will make you what? Fishers of men, right. And it says they immediately left their nets and they followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James the son of Zebedee and his John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father. They had a little corporate business too, fishing. And so it was, it was basically uh, Peter and Andrew and, and James and John and their dad. And they had two companies. But they're always doing stuff together, these guys. 
And it says, he saw them in the boat mending their nets. And he called them and immediately they left their boat and their father and they followed Christ. It's interesting, when you look over at Luke chapter 5, this whole account, Peter's not even mentioned. He was there because Matthew makes it clear, but he's so much in the background at times, it doesn't even, it's not even important to mention the guy. So he was the kind of person who very seldom would come to the forefront. He would remain kind of hidden, but he was very outspoken about his faith. He must have followed Christ eagerly and as quickly as the others, but he played kind of quiet. Maybe he's a little shy. I don't know. He was kind of the unsung role there in, in obscurity. He had lived his whole life in the shadow of Peter. But you know what? That's really what made him so useful, his willingness to accept that role. See, some people, unfortunately, if they're going to play in the band, to use a musical illustration, they're the ones that always got to play drums. If they're not playing drum, they're not playing. Why? Because the drum drummer basically is the center of the band. <laughs> they're the one that keeps the rhythm. They're the one that everything revolves around that. And some people in leadership, unless they're the, the top honcho or the head of everybody, they don't want to play. That's unfortunate. But see, Andrew wasn't that way. He said, that's fine. I, I mean, God created me this way and I'm going to serve the best way I see fit. And so there's certain characteristics about Andrew that we, we want to look at this morning. Just three of them, basically. And the first one was this, is that he saw the value of individual people. He saw the value of individual people. See, when it came to dealing with people, Andrew fully appreciated the value of a single soul. He was known for bringing individuals, not crowds, individuals to Christ. Almost every time we see Andrew in one of the Gospels accounts, he's bringing someone to Jesus. That's just what he did. Remember, after his first act, uh, after he discovered Christ, was to go and get his brother Peter. And that basically set the precedent for Andrew's style of ministry. That's exactly what he was going to do. He didn't go out and, and shout it in the, in, the, in the square of the town and saying, everybody's got to come to Christ. No, he went to an individual and he got that individual to come to Christ. Remember at the feeding of the 5,000, it was Andrew who went out and found that little boy with the loaves and the fish. And what did he do? He brought him back to Jesus. I mean, the other guys are going crazy. They're thinking, wow, this isn't going to work. What are we going to do? And Andrew goes, well, let's see what I can do here. Just quietly goes off, grabs his lad who's there with five barley loaves and two small fish, and he brings him to Christ. In John chapter 12, it tells us that some Greeks sought out, who were basically Gentiles, sought out Philip. And they were asking questions about Christ. And it almost seems like Philip is kind of uh, unsure what to do with these Gentiles. And so he doesn't just take them to Christ. He goes and he asks Andrew. And what does Andrew do? Andrew says, oh, come on, I'll take you to Christ. And he takes these Gentiles to Christ. So everywhere we see Andrew, he's always taking people to Christ. And usually it's individuals. And that just was his, his, his way that he dealt with people. That's just the way that it worked. 
John 1, he brought Peter to Christ, which made him basically the first home missionary, you might think of it that way. He brings Greeks to Christ, makes him the first foreign missionary. One thing that, that I see clearly to apply this first point to us is sometimes pastors or people in ministry or churches, they get all hung up on the big stuff. Okay, they get hung up on the big stuff. Got to have a big outreach. Got to have this. We got to have that. What program? What evangelism program do you have in your church? And you could go out and you could spend probably thousands and thousands of dollars to buy the next best program that's guaranteed to grow your church evangelistically in forty days. That's just the number they always use. I don't know why, but that's basically it. See, Andrew wasn't into that stuff. And I don't think it's biblical necessarily to be into that thing stuff. Does God use things like that? Sure, he does sometimes. But I think what I see in the Bible, the basic New Testament church, how did it grow? It grew by, it grew by teaching the word of God. It grew through prayer. And it grew through people like Andrew who said, you know what, I'm going to go out and get somebody and I'm going to bring them to Christ. It wasn't ten people. It wasn't five people. It was one. One person. And I, I still believe that's the most effective way that we can share the gospel is on a personal level, one by one. Sure, you can invite your unsaved neighbors to church and hopefully we'll make them feel welcome and, you know, eventually maybe they'll come to Christ if they hear the truth enough and God convicts their heart and God draws them. All that will happen. But you think back, and probably the way you came to Christ, the way I came to Christ, was somebody sat me down and shared the gospel with me one-on-one. And I saw something different in that individual as they came to this individual, and I thought, wow, there's something here. It didn't have to be a big program. It didn't have to be a big tent meeting, anything like that. No pressure. It's just like, hey, you know what? I'm going to share this with you one-on-one. And that's probably the most effective means for bringing people to Christ is one-on-one, one-by-one on on an individual basis. Both Andrew and his brother Peter had evangelistic hearts. They truly did. They both wanted people to come to Christ. But their methods were dramatically different. Stop and think about it. Peter preached at Pentecost. 3,000 souls were added to the church in one sermon. Nothing in Scripture that we can find indicates that Andrew ever preached to a crowd. Never stirred the masses of people. But he was faithful, and one by one, he would bring people to Christ. See, you don't have to be Greg Laurie or Billy Graham or Rick Warren to be effective in the kingdom of God. Supposedly effective. By the world standards, people have big churches and they think, wow, that guy's effective. I think of all the, the people in ministry, in, in full-time ministry, we all should be in full-time ministry, but I mean on a paid basis, people who are part-time, people who don't get nothing for their work. I think of people out in Nebraska somewhere, some pastor pastoring a, a congregation of maybe 10 or 15 people. And he's been doing it for 50 years. Is he any less than somebody like 
Rick Warren or Greg Laurie. No, not in, the, not in the eyes of God. If he's teaching the truth, if he's faithful to what God has called him to do, that's all that matters. It's not about how big your church is. It's not about how many people you can say, oh, I, I led this person to Christ, I led that person to Christ. I was involved with a church one time where their whole soul-winning mentality was, you know what, when you bring someone to Christ, we give you a little badge and you put it on your little vest and you wear that vest to church on Sunday. And everybody looks and, oh, you, you got three rows. Whoa, you, you led nine people to Christ. And it became kind of a prideful thing. We see that all over the place today in ministry. There's no place for that. Andrew knew that. So he just quietly went one by one and he began to bring people to Christ. God works that way a lot of times. I don't know if you've ever heard of Edward Kimball, but his name is kind of a footnote in church history. He was a Sunday school teacher who led D.L. Moody to Christ. And basically, the story says that he went one afternoon to the Boston shoe store where this 19-year-old Moody worked. And he cornered him in the stock room and he introduced him to Christ. And when you read accounts of this, basically, Kimball was not somebody who was a very good evangelist. It was just the opposite. He wasn't bold at all. He was a timid, soft-spoken man. And he went to that shoe shop, frightened in his account, trembling, unsure whether or not he had enough courage to confront this young guy about Christ with the gospel. At the time, Moody, who wasn't converted yet, was crude. He was obviously illiterate. But the thought of speaking to him about Christ had Kimball trembling in his boots. The story goes on. He recalled the incident. Moody had begun to attend his Sunday school class. And it was obvious that Moody was totally untaught and ignorant about the Bible. I decided to speak to Moody about Christ and about his soul. I started down to the, the town, to downtown, to Holton Shoe Store. When I was nearly there, I began to wonder whether I ought to go just then during business hours. And I thought maybe my mission might embarrass the poor kid. And that when I went away to the other clerks, um, the other clerks might ask who was that, and they'd learn that, that they would make fun of Moody or something, that he was coming to Sunday school. And he was pondering whether to go at all. And when I f- found I had gone by the door, I determined to make a dash for it and to have it over at once. Kimball found Moody in, working in the stock room, wrapping and shelving shoes. Kimball said, He spoke with limping words. He later said, I could, I never could remember just what I did say. Something about Christ and his love. (laughs) That was all. He admitted it was a weak appeal. But Moody then and there gave his heart to Christ. Of course, D.L. Moody was used mightily of the Lord as an evangelist both in America and in England. His ministries have made an incredible impact on both sides of the Atlantic. Tens of thousands come to Christ because of him, including people like evangelist C.T. Studd, Wilbur Chapman, others. He has the Moody Bible Institute, where millions of missionaries and evangelists and other Christian workers have been trained throughout the years. And it all began with one man, Andrew, or this uh, Kimball, bringing him to Christ. 
Just like it began with one man, Andrew, bringing people to Christ. See, that's the way God works, one-on-one. I pray that we would have many Andrews in our church that are willing to go out and introduce people to Christ one-on-one. No pressure. Just get to know them. Too many Christians think that because they can't speak in front of a group or because you know, they don't have certain leadership gifts or whatever, that you know, they just can't be used. And that's not true. All of us are called to evangelize. All of us are called to take the gospel to the lost. And like Andrew, I think the most effective way to do it is one-on-one. So he, he saw the value of individuals. He also saw the value of insignificant gifts. And some people see the big picture more clearly. And uh, they do that because they appreciate smaller things. That's where Andrew was. Andrew was kind of the apostle of small things, as John MacArthur put it. Uh, it comes clearly when, when we look at the feeding of the 5,000. Jesus had gone to a mountain, tried to be alone with his disciples. It often happens, you know, all of a sudden, multitudes are surrounding him. They tracked him down. It was just before the Passover, the most important holiday on the Jewish calendar. And basically, it was precisely one year before Christ would be crucified. All of a sudden, there's this huge crowd of people around him and his disciples. And it was nearing the time of the day where people would eat. And bread, obviously, was often a subject lesson for Christ. So he made it clear that he wanted to feed these thousands of people. And in the account, in John 6, he asked Philip where they might get some bread. John adds this little comment in John 6, 6. This he said to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Speaking of the sovereignty of Christ. And Philip, who basically was the bean counter of the group, did all these calculations and said, you know what? Uh, We only have 200 denarii in the treasury, and that's not enough. What are we going to do? And he was overwhelmed. Philip was overwhelmed with the idea that Jesus wanted them to feed these people. It's just incredible. Matthew records this. This is a deserted place. The hour's already late. Send these people away. That they can go to their own villages and buy their own food. And Jesus answered, Matthew 14, 16, they do not need to go away. You give them something to eat. Now, can you imagine the disciples looking at each other going, we don't have anything. What are we going to give them? We're not talking just a couple people. We're talking about thousands of people. And at that point, John 6, 9 says, Andrew spoke up. One of the few times he speaks. And here's what he says. You know, there's a little boy over here who has five barley loaves and two small fish. I mean, couldn't you imagine the other disciples? Like, <laughs> right, Andrew, okay. You know, like, yeah, what, what are you going to do with that? I mean, even Andrew knew that wasn't going to be enough. But he didn't care. He's bringing this kid to Christ because that's what he did. So I don't know how this is going to work, but you know what? I know that when I bring people to Christ, something changes. He identified the one food source available, and he made sure that Jesus knew about it. 
He knew that somehow Christ could take this insignificant amount and turn it into a miracle. John concludes the narrative. says, Then Jesus said, Make the people sit down. Now there's not much grass in that place there. So the men sat down and it says in a number of about 5,000. You know the miracle. Jesus took the loaves when he had given thanks. He distributed them to the disciples and the disciples gave to those who were sitting down. And likewise, the same thing happened with the fish. And it seems that they had as much as they wanted. So when they were filled, he said to his disciples, gather up the fragments that remain so that nothing is lost. They had food left over, folks. Therefore, they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with the fragments of the five barley loaves which were left over by those who had eaten. I mean, what an amazing lesson for these guys that so little could be used to accomplish so much with Christ's power. See, and that's, that's really the lesson for us here. There is really no insignificant gift when we give it to Christ. We may look at ourselves and say, you know what, I'm not talented in this way. I don't have this. I don't have that personality. I don't, you know, I mean, what's God going to do with me? I don't know. Just give yourself to him and sit back and watch because you'll be amazed. That's how it always works. It's the sacrificial faithfulness of the giver, beloved. It's not the size of the gift. Do we understand that? Sometimes I don't think we do. Sometimes I think that it's the size of the gift. No, it's, it's the sacrificial faithfulness of the giver. See, that's the true measure of the gift's significance. I mean, Christ taught them that once again with the, the widow and the mite, remember, the widow's mites and all that. He, he revisited that lesson with them. He takes the sacrificial and often insignificant gifts of people who give faithfully, and he multiplies them to accomplish monumental things. I mean, beloved, we see that even here in our own church. We're a small church, okay? I, I speak to other pastors at times who have churches that are 10, 20 times the size of ours. Because of the financial situation that our economy's in, usually it ends up, you know, how's your, you know, your, your church been hit by the big, you know, the, all the financial things? And I say, yeah, we saw a little downturn in giving. Oh, you know, we're having to cut staff and we're, you know, we're bored. We're in our eyeballs and debt. And they go on in these horror stories. And I sit back and I go, wow. Here's our small little church. Somehow, <laughs> we're making it week to week. Just keep plugging away. Debt free. I mean, that's an amazing testimony to the faithfulness of what the world might look at and say, oh, these are insignificant gifts. See, God takes those insignificant gifts when they're given faithfully and he uses them and he multiplies them. And he does that with our gifts and talents as well. You know, the people that, that, that I love in ministry are the people that come and say, you know, I don't even know what God wants me to do. I'm willing to try whatever. I just know that I'm supposed to be used in the local church. What do I do? I'll take that person over someone who comes, well, I, you know, this is, this is what I'm doing. I'm the leader. I'm this. I'm that. Okay? So we have to be 
cautious of that. We have to be, we have to, un, have to un, be understanding of that. It's not just what we see on the outside. It's what's in the person's heart. And that's what Andrew saw. And the third thing he saw was the value of inconspicuous service. See, James and John had the tendency of, hey, they, they wanted to be used and they wanted to serve, but if nobody was looking, well, they're not going to be, they'll be fighting about it. Peter was the same way, but not Andrew. He's never named as a participant in those big debates. Remember last week we talked about wherever this first group was following Christ, they were always kicking up dust, they were always fighting. Basically, it was three of those guys. Peter, James, and John. They're always elbowing each other. No, I want to be first. No, I want to be first. No, I want to be first. I want to sit next to Jesus in the kingdom. They're always arguing about something like that. But not so Andrew. He was okay to kind of pull it back and say, you know, I'm just going to serve Jesus the best way that I can. He was more concerned about bringing people to Jesus than about who got credit or who was in charge. It didn't matter. He had little craving for that kind of an honor system. We never hear him say anything unless it's related to bringing someone to Christ. See, Andrew is basically that, that picture of those who labor quietly in humble places. The Bible says in Ephesians 6, 6, that we're to serve not with eye service as men pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from what? From the heart. We don't serve Christ because we're made to serve. We don't serve Christ because, boy, if I don't, I'll feel guilty. We serve Christ from the heart. Andrew wasn't some impressive pillar like like Peter, James, and John. He was much humbler than that. He was one of those rare people who was willing to take second place and to be in a place of support. He didn't mind being hidden. As long as the work was done, who cares who gets the credit? That was his mentality. I mean, may we learn from Andrew's example. I mean, Scripture cautions us time and time again about seeking a role as far as prominence goes. In James 3.11, we discussed this in our, our Wednesday night group. My brethren, let not many of you become teachers, knowing that we shall receive a stricter judgment. Jesus taught his disciples in Mark 9.35, If any man desires to be first, what? The same shall be the last of all, the servant of all. See, if there's one thing that we should be known for is our servant's heart for Christ. Is that kind of special person here that, that, that God can take and be a leader, a servant leader. Andrew was like that. As far as we know, he never preached to the multitudes. He never found any churches. He never wrote an epistle. He isn't mentioned in the book of Acts or any of the epistles other than that one list. He's more of a, 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 of a silhouette. The Bible does not record what happened to Andrew after Pentecost. I'm sure he played a dynamic role in the early church history but he did so behind the scenes. Church history says, by tradition, they say that maybe he took the gospel north. Eusebius, the church historian, says that Andrew went as far as Scythia, which is up near uh, uh, 
the, the Russian part. And that's why he's the saint, paint, patron saint of Russia. He's also the patron saint of Scotland. Tradition says that he was ultimately crucified in Achaia, which is in the southern part of Greece near Athens. One account says this, that he led the wife of a provincial Roman governor to Christ. And that infuriated her husband. And as a result, he demanded that his, his wife, this, this Roman governor, demanded that his wife, who was a newfound believer, deny Christ. And history says that she refused to do so. And so the governor had Andrew crucified as a result of that. By the governor's orders, those who crucified him, instead of nailing him to the cross, they tied him to the cross so that his sufferings would be prolonged. Tradition says that he was placed on an X-shaped cross. That was even worse than the other. Most accounts say that he hung on the cross for two days. And while he was hanging there on the cross, basically dying, people would pass by. And tradition says that he would cry out to them to turn to Christ for their salvation. After a lifetime of ministry in the shadow of his more famous brother, Peter, he met the similar fate that they met. He remained faithful, but he was still endeavoring to bring people to Christ right to the end. Was he slighted? No, he was privileged. He was the first to hear that Jesus was the Lamb of God. He was the first to follow Christ. He was part of the inner circle, given that intimate access to Christ. The Bible says his name, along with the others, will be inscribed on the foundations of the eternal city, the new Jerusalem. Best of all, he had a whole lifetime of privilege doing what he loved best, introducing individuals to the Lord. I mean, we should thank God for people like Andrew. We should strive to be like Andrew. They're quiet individuals laboring faithfully in inconspicuous places, maybe giving insignificant gifts, insignificant talents to the Lord so that they could accomplish what God wants. They may not receive a lot of recognition, but you know what? People like Andrew don't seek it. All they want to hear is at the end of their life, they hear, well done, good and faithful servant. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul writes this, beginning in verse 27. God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. And the base things of the world... And the things which are despised, God has chosen. And the things which are not, to bring to nothing the things that are. And here's why. That no flesh should glory in his presence. Join me in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to take a glimpse into the life of Andrew. And Father, we pray that even now as we prepare our hearts for our communion time, Lord, we ask that you would uh, just do your work in each person's heart that's gathered here. Father, we ask that you would uh, minister your grace.
Lord, that you would help us to discern uh, what you would desire from us at this time. Lord, the Bible makes it clear that when we come to this time, when we come to share communion, that we should uh, definitely take time to discern our own hearts, to seek to step back and just observe what's in our own life. Lord, if there's anything that would bring dishonor to you, now's the time to deal with it. Now's the time to bring it to you. The Bible says very clearly that if we confess our sins, you are faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We're not to partake of this table in an unworthy manner because that brings dishonor to the Lord. Lord, we thank you for the forgiveness we have in Christ. And so, Father, we pray this morning that you would do that work in our hearts as we prepare our hearts for communion. Father, as we just sing a couple songs in preparation, that you would... uh... And, Father, we thank you and we praise you. In Jesus' name.